chapters. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who's an early persecutor of the church. He becomes a Christian. Jesus calls him to go and to plant churches and to create disciples who follow him. And late in his life, he writes a letter to a church in a city called Ephesus. And I'm just going to read the first two verses from chapter 5. That's all we're going to look at today. So Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, you can follow along on the screen if you don't know where to find it in your Bible or you can look it up and track it down. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So when I was growing up, there were a few people that I sought to imitate. So on the top of my list, obviously, Luke Skywalker, um, farm boy from nowhere who's catapulted into a destiny that's both exciting and important. But He-Man was right up there. And I actually still, this is true, I still get chills when I hear the He-Man theme song and its introduction. And part of the reason is because back in the day, and if you're probably under the age of 25, you can't relate to this at all, but back in the day, uh, cartoons and TV shows weren't on demand. You couldn't just watch an episode and then click and watch the next one. You had to wait an entire week before you got access to the next, what essentially was a 20-minute episode. And so the anticipation was often excruciating. And you didn't dare miss your date with He-Man on Saturday morning at 8.30, because that was it. There was no YouTube to get caught up or anything. It was, that was it. It's there, that, or nothing. So you did not want to wait a minute. You did not want to sleep in. I actually saw a really interesting documentary about the Masters of the Universe toy line. And uh, the character of He-Man came about because Hasbro needed a competitive toy line to Kenner's Star Wars line, which was dominating the market, especially among young boys. And so what the uh, all-male team at that time at Hasbro did is they collected a bunch of five-year-old boys, put them in a room, gave them a bunch of different uh, toys and activities and prototypes to play with, and just observed just observed what they gravitated to and the patterns. And the moment of clarity where He-Man came about was in their debriefing afterwards, the staff, and saying, hey, what did you notice? What did you pick up on? Let's compare notes. One of the employees reflected and said, did you see how much time the boys spent jostling over who was in charge? It's like they were always trying to figure out who, was, who had the power. And that's where He-Man's tagline came from. I have the power. So He-Man was created to very directly fulfill a power fantasy that many little boys have, to be muscular and heroic and powerful. And the marketing worked because within two years, the profits of He-Man reached into the hundreds of millions worldwide. And so the success of He-Man is rooted in very basic human psychology. Much of our learning in life comes as a result of imitation. We take note of someone whom we respect and whom we admire, whether they're real or imagined, and we seek to imitate their example. How they talk, how they dress, how they speak, maybe different mannerisms in certain contexts. And I'm not just talking about little kids. I mean, that's more heightened when you're smaller. But it continues for most of our life. And that's what most of marketing is. And that's why it still works on adults. 
because most marketing, most commercials, are micro-stories telling you about a person who is succeeding at life and suggesting that this admirable, likable, powerful, competent person is worthy of imitation. Oh, and by the way, this product is a major reason why this person has that force of presence and competency. So even marketers understand the power of role models and imitation and are longing to want to latch onto examples to imitate. Now, it's not my intent this morning to slam the marketing industry. My point is to draw attention to the fact that one of the major ways God has wired us to learn and to grow is through imitation. And as we grow up, we often don't have a precise picture of the kind of person that we want to be, but then we meet someone, we see someone, we encounter a show or, in my case, a cartoon, and you look at that person and there's something about them that makes you say, yeah, that's it. That's the kind of man I want to be. That's the kind of woman I want to be. That's the kind of fill-in-the-blank I want to be. I see something admirable, and I, consciously or not, I begin to imitate that person. When I was in my early 20s, a few people around me had floated the idea of going into pastoral ministry. And I scoffed at that idea, principally for two reasons. The first was that I thought, well, to be honest, pastoring is what Christians do when you can't really do anything else. So it's kind of like a plan, the great plan B for Christians who love Jesus but don't know how to competently exercise their agency in the world. But there was another reason that I had to be a little bit older before I realized that that dynamic at play. And that was part of my resistance came from the fact that I had never encountered a pastor who I wanted to imitate. Most of the pastors that I had met, and there was a small circle, but at least, if I would have been honest with you at the time, I would have said, oh, they're too old. They're too tired. They seem to be irrelevant. The way they talk is too formal or it's too full of Christianese or it's boring or it's stuffy. Or there was just something about the way they carried themselves. I couldn't look at them and think, yeah, I, I could see myself becoming that. I want to be that. It was like, well, pastors have taken on a particular expression and shape and I just can never see myself as a pastor. And it wasn't until I went to hear Bruxy Cavey speak at a little high school church in Oakville, Ontario, that my imagination was kind of ignited with new possibilities. So Bruxy was a pastor, but he didn't look like any of the pastors that I had come to uh, know, and certainly my template for pastor was suit and tie, very formal. He, he kind of looked like Jesus, or at least what Jesus would have looked like if, if Jesus would have eaten Buddha. <laughs> Bruxy, Bruxy was a pastor, but he didn't talk like a pastor. He didn't speak in a lot of the Christianese that I had come to understand came from the pulpit, and he came across as really relatable. There was nothing, there was no distance there. You really felt like he was a regular person who loved Jesus, took the text seriously, wanted to grow as a disciple, and he's someone that um, you wanted to hopefully run into during the week because he just seemed really relatable and personable. And he was pastoral, but he wasn't cheesy. He was really, really smart, but he wasn't stuffy or overly academic. 
and his preaching was engaging and creative and grace-filled. It wasn't dry or predictable or shame-based. Bruxy was unlike any pastor I'd ever seen before. And he quickly became someone that I sought to imitate because I saw in him the qualities that I wanted to cultivate in myself. And because he was a pastor and he had those qualities, there was a bit of a, you know, the Holy Spirit began to invite me into the conversation and the idea of maybe this is something that someone like me could do. Because Bruxy fit more of the, a template of how I saw myself in that role as opposed to other people that I had seen. And so that was about 20 years ago. But since that time, I've continued to find and follow and imitate many pastors and speakers and Christian leaders who I've come to respect for their biblical clarity, their cultural relevance, their communication styles. And so my role models have definitely come a long way from Luke Skywalker and He-Man, but I still have them. Let's just pause for a moment and let me ask you a question. Who have been people in your life that you've sought to imitate? If you have the sermon notes, I actually have three lines, and I'd encourage you to write down the names of three people that you have sought to, that you've admired, could be recent, could be in your distant past, and that you've sought to imitate. Bring those people to mind. Take a moment to write down two or three of those people, and then take another moment just to thank God for them. Because whether to a great degree or a small degree, God has used those to challenge and shape you as a person. Now, can I, can I invite maybe one or two of you to just share really quickly why you, write down, why you wrote down those people? You don't have to go into a whole huge backstory, but you just might want to highlight one thing that really impressed me about this person or was an impression um, that, you know, I made a huge impression on me from this person was blank. Does anyone feel like they have the courage and vulnerability just to share one of their names and... Okay, why? Awesome. Great example. Martin Luther says, I don't want the religious leaders and authorities to just be hogging this thing. This is meant for every single person. Starts a revolution that he didn't have a vision for initially. He was just operating from a godly desire to equip every single Christian with God's truth. Anyone else? Oh, Oswald Chambers. And why did you write down that name, Corinne? Conviction. The way he writes comes from a place of deep conviction. To read Oswald Chambers is to invite deep conviction into your life. That, that's not a, a fluffy sort of engagement with the text and with the reflection on deeper things within the Christian journey. For each person that you listed, you're probably going to have one or two main words or themes that stick out to you. But I want to invite you to think one level underneath those qualities of admiration. Do you know why you gravitated towards that person? Why the historical figure of Martin Luther or the devotional writing of Oswald Chambers? There's lots of historical figures. There's lots of writing. There's lots of people you've had in your life. What, if, what is it underneath those characteristics that you've listed or can think of that have really caused you to gravitate 
and to seek to imitate that person. Well, I would invite you to think about the fact that as human beings, we tend to admire deeply those who image God in an especially powerful and compelling way. We tend to admire those who image God in a powerful and compelling way, right? Every human being is made in the image of God. This is the Bible's language that gives all humans status which is distinct from every other creature. The Bible makes it clear, humans are not God, nor do they have divinity within themselves in the sense that they are somehow, um, they, have, they share God's DNA or some kind of idea like that. The Bible's language makes a different distinction. They are image bearers of God, meaning God created them, places them in the garden, and places them in the world in order to reflect who he is into creation. Human beings were created to represent God to the world and to each other and to reflect his character and goodness to each other and to the world. Now, because of the presence of sin in our lives, uh, to use N.T. Wright's, I think, helpful analogy, we are all, we still reflect, we still image God, but we image God like a mirror that's been smashed and broken. The image is distorted. Sometimes you're like, oh, I kind of see it. I kind of see God-like characteristics and goodness of humanity, but I see a lot of corruption. I see a lot of brokenness, and we fail in our ability to image God to each other and to the world as image bearers. And yet, even though sin has taken root in all of our hearts, some people image God's goodness and character more clearly than other people, right? The, the people you admire and have sought to imitate are people who reflect a particular dimension of God's goodness and character in a way that is especially powerful and compelling. They might not even recognize it, but that is what we're picking up on. Through people, we're searching for glory. We're searching for that's the way it's supposed to be, which is ultimately found in God. But we can get glimpses of that through the image bearers that he's made all around us. And so when we encounter people who know how to love really well, who know how to serve well, who are brave, who are wise, who are creative, who are compassionate, who are brilliant, who are beautiful, who are innovative, what we're picking up on is a sense of their image-bearing godliness. We're saying, wow, that is, that's what real human image-bearing is supposed to look like as it relates to the creative arts, or as it relates to generosity, or as it relates to how to grieve and mourn with those who are mourning. In our passage this morning, Paul has just come through a series of behaviors that he wants Christians in the city of Ephesus to adopt. But he's not just preaching moralism, right? It's good to be good. It's nice to be nice. You're a Christian now, so stop doing bad things and just be good. He's pointing to Jesus, and verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 are actually the conclusion of what he was talking about in chapter 4. And he summarizes this by saying, Be imitators of God, therefore. Follow God's lead as dearly loved children. Now, for a lot of people, if I say something like, Be an imitator of God, you're going to be, 
a little stumped in terms of what that looks like, right? Jeff, okay, I don't, what do you mean imitate God? Like I can believe in God, I understand what that means. Believe things about God, but how do I imitate God? Because to imitate someone, you have to see them, you have to know them. There has to be some kind of proximity and contact because you can't image something in the abstract. You can't imitate something in the abstract. You have to be able to see it and say, oh, I noticed how they said that or what they're doing here. That's, that's really helpful. I'm going to tuck that away. And then I begin to imitate it in my own life. But how can you imitate a God that you've never seen? What would that even mean? Right? You need a concrete example in order to imitate something. And that's why Paul immediately moves from be imitators of God the Father, therefore, and live a life of love. And he goes right to Jesus. Because Jesus is, one of the titles that Jesus bears is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God come in the flesh, in human form, to provide a concrete demonstration of the character and goodness of God, but also what a fully perfect, not shattered, not distorted, image-bearing human looks like. So in Jesus, what we see is a concrete example of what does it mean to love God with every part of who we are and to deeply and creatively love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we have this example to imitate, and that's why Paul goes right to Jesus and says, therefore, live a life of love. Okay, what's a life of love? Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, if you're a Christian, you're called to imitate Jesus' love through our lives. And the shape that this love takes is most clearly displayed through Jesus' heroic, sacrificial decision to leave heaven, to draw close to us, to go to the cross for us, to conquer the forces of sin and death via the resurrection, and then to offer that to us at great cost to himself, but as a gift that can simply be received and lived into by putting your faith in him. And he does that all, not for his own benefit, he had all the glories of heaven before, he does it for ours, so that you and I can be restored to the kind of life God intends us to live. So that God could take you and I as these broken mirrors, these broken reflective surfaces, and begin to repair us. So that every day and every month and every year that goes by, as we participate with Jesus and grow in him, we reflect God's goodness in a more faithful way to the world and we more faithfully love and care for people. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. What does it mean to live a life of love? This is what we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's what love looks like. It's not primarily a sentiment, although there can be sentimentality, that's fine, but it's not just a sentiment or a feeling. It's the act of giving oneself over for the benefit and blessing of another person. And so it's Jesus' burden-bearing, self-sacrificing, compassion-fueled actions that we're called to grow in as Christians. That's what it means to lay down your life for other people. Now, that doesn't mean we would never take care of ourselves and we should always and ever be giving out. Jesus doesn't model that. We shouldn't. Wisdom would say, no, that doesn't mean we never take care of ourselves. Rest and refreshment are biblical priorities that Jesus practiced and we should too. But 
why are we doing, why are we pursuing and scheduling times of rest and refreshment into our lives so that we're strengthened, so that we can continue to lay down our lives for other people. So we're not simply pursuing it as a way to, uh, through some kind of uh, hedonistic lens, that I just want to live a life of leisure. I structure times of rest and refreshment into my life so that I can better lay down my life for my wife, my family, this church, my particular sense of calling in the world. When I was thinking about imitation, um, I thought it's probably important to talk about the difference between imitation and mimicry. That's a, that's a pretty important distinction that I want to highlight here. Imitation is the act of taking on the essence of someone or something. Mimicry is the act of simulating the appearance of someone or something. So imitation is the act of taking on the actual essence or as much as you can, grabbing the whole thing and saying, I want this to become me. Mimicry is simply simulating the appearance. And the scripture says we are called to imitate Jesus, not mimic Jesus. And I think that's an important reflection. Think of it this way. So here's a picture. This is a good visual representation. Sorry that you'll never be able to get it out of your mind. Um, It's a good visual representation of the difference between mimicry and imitation. Right? At Halloween, kids or kids at heart will often mimic their heroes. That's what you're doing, right? But it's superficial. It's just about the outside layer. Um, To mimic, all you really need is a cheap suit, uh, or a costume that's designed to look close enough so that other people kind of recognize vaguely the character that you're attempting to embody. But, so, you know, on the left, right, there's a punk who is trying to mimic He-Man. But on the right is an actual cosplay of He-Man. Now, cosplay or costume play is, I would argue, it's a kind of art form because it's a comprehensive act of imitation, not mimicry. It isn't superficial. A ton of planning, preparation, mentally, physically, financially, logistically, goes into the costume. And what's the goal? It's to have people not only recognize the character that you're dressing up as, that would be relatively easy, But ideally, the goal is to embody that character's essence so comprehensively that for all intents and purposes, you have become the object of your admiration. And other people feel as though they have encountered the master of the universe and not just Jeff in a cheap costume, right? Christianity is a summons to the imitation of Jesus' character and his example, not simply mimicry of it. And what do I mean by that? It means a Christian isn't someone who adopts a religious costume, an outward appearance. 
and uh, that kind of resembles Jesus. They kind of pull a hodgepodge of practices maybe. They go to church, they smile, they project what they think other people expect from them or what a good Christian looks like. Maybe they own a Bible. Maybe they get bonus points because once in a while they read it, right? They pray at dinner, and they're sincere in their faith, but their faith is also generally superficial. It's about the outward appearance. It's about projecting a certain image. But you can clearly imagine, if you haven't walked this path, even if you haven't walked this path, that um, your heart can still be very far from God. You might not even be a genuine Jesus follower. You just might be someone who's taking a grab bag of religious rituals and practices and saying, I guess this is what it means to mimic Jesus. So it's kind of like a religious dress-up game. We are close enough, and people are kind of like, oh yeah, that's a good person, you know, kind of Christ-like in some ways. But the Bible says that this way of living is just mimicry, and it's powerless. It doesn't require much of anything, and any alterations that are going to happen are all are pretty much superficial. And there may be alterations in behavior. I'm going to start doing these good things. I'm going to stop doing these bad things. But there's no real transformation of your heart. You're still living from your own will, according to your own agenda. Your heart and your imagination and your will hasn't been touched or transformed by God. But a true Christian is someone who not perfectly is doing this, but is seeking every day to grow, to embody the essence of Jesus' character. And they have a vision for their life. They want to. It's not, it doesn't feel like a duty to them. It feels like a, a beauty. They want to comprehensively become more like Jesus in their character, in their life expression, to understand creative and winsome ways to do that at work, at school, in their finances, in their recreation, in their friendships, in terms of how they use and express their body, all of it. They aren't interested in religious dress-up. They're not interested in kind of Christianity light or just kind of kind of good enough approximating what other people expect them to act like or talk like as a Christian. What a real Christian wants is the real thing. They want the real thing. And a very strong challenge to the church in Philippi, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to God's instructions, the law, a Pharisee, I was an expert, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. I hit all the marks of what I was supposed to do. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, all my religiosity was just kind of religious mimicry. From the outside looking in, I'm faultless, but it's just a superficial shell. Might be impressive from a human point of view, but my life and my heart wasn't transformed. And Paul says, I'm done playing that game. I'm done playing religious dress up. That, that way just leads to death. I want to know Christ. Think about the relational language, right? He talks about all these things he did for God, maybe for God who, who he thought was way out there and didn't have a relationship with. He was just focused on himself and his own religious observance. Now he just wants to know Christ and he wants to know the faith that comes from knowing Jesus and the transformation that does touch his imagination and his will and his heart. Because Paul understands that in Christ is where the life that is truly life is found, not just by adopting religion or certain practices. And my concern is that there are far too many Christians who have either inadvertently or not embraced simple mimicry of Jesus or mimicry of Christianity. And so they give a superficial nod. They, absolutely, I believe certain things. I believe Jesus was the Son of God, and I try and give a little bit to the church, and I go to church like a few times a year and like try and be a good person. But there isn't a wholehearted pursuit of Jesus. There isn't a fascination with what does it mean today for me to creatively love God and love other people? What would that look like to take another step of vulnerability, another step of faith towards confronting things that need to be confronted, to saying, speaking the truth in love, to reaching out to those who people around me, uh, who, people for whom those, those people are invisible or don't count or don't matter. A Christian is someone who wants Jesus to transform them, heart, soul, mind, and strength into who you were meant to be. To say, God, I am a good image bearer who value, who, you know, in my essence, you made me good, but I'm broken, God. I realize that, and I need to be redeemed. I need to be repaired. I need your love and your grace and your purpose and your power and your forgiveness to begin dealing with these wounds, righting these wrongs, empowering me to the kind of life that I get glimpses that I'm called to live and I want to, but I don't know how to access it simply by living out of my own strength and my own willpower. So next week I'm going to stay in this text and tease out what it requires from us to move beyond mimicry to genuine imitation, to move from the mimicry of Christ to the imitation of Christ. But for today, I just want to invite you to consider whether or not your pursuit of Jesus looks like, you know, column A or column B. And maybe that won't be your life in its totality. Maybe in a lot of places, you're over here and you're like, this is sincere. But in, a, in another place, you're kind of giving lip service to God. And you're just saying, you know what, this is an area where I'm just like, uh, how can I put on a good mask or costume so that other people get off my back and I can kind of look, but I know things aren't right. I'm not pursuing Jesus faithfully in this area. Maybe for you, it started off as genuine discipleship and then the storms and struggles of life come and for whatever reason you've slipped into mimicry. You're going through the motions and you never wanted to be 
a hypocrite or anything, but you do find yourself living out your Christian faith more with a view to project an image to people around you rather than to cultivate and foster a relationship with Jesus and to live for his approval. Right? You've started to kind of bend into what does my church or these people around me or friends and family think how I should live and we've, we've stopped coming back to the center and source. Now regardless of where you are, I would just want to point out that you're not going to experience the God-saturated, kind of spirit-filled life if you continue to walk in mimicry. It just won't happen. Not because God is punishing you, but just because in any relationship, if you're going through the motions, that relationship just will never ever continue to move together and get stronger. It'll just continue to fray and the sense of intimacy and the sense of connection will just, the, the distance will grow greater because for a relationship to grow, you have to be growing into each other and serving and caring for each other and growing and being exp- exposing your heart to each other. And so what I would say this morning is please don't settle in your Christian life for mimicking Jesus, mimicking Christianity. God has something far richer and deeper for those who choose the path of imitation rather than just the path of mimicry. And therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray.